This message comes from NPR's sponsor, Patreon, where creators can build a more sustainable income source by giving their fans monthly access to exclusive community, premium content, and the chance to become active participants in the work they love. Check out patreon.com now. From NPR Music, it's All Songs Considered. I'm Tom Heisinga, classical music producer. We are looking back at the past decade in music, the trends, the milestones, the major moments, and on this episode, the focus is on the classical music world. And here with me is Anne Majette, author and chief classical critic at The Washington Post. Hello, Anne. Hello. Thanks for having me. Thank you for dropping by. And we decided to give this episode a very bright and cheery title, Classical Music, A Decade of Reckoning. And there's our decade of reckoning theme music, if you will. But the classical music world has had to navigate through some turbulent waters in the past decade. And over the next half hour, we'll talk about many of them, including diversity, finances, labor issues, and harassment. But there have been many bright moments, too. And to get us started talking about the kind of one-step-forward, one-step-back strides that women have made in classical music, I thought we'd go back to April 15. 2013 at 3 p.m. when it was announced that this music was awarded the Pulitzer Prize. music from Partita for Eight Singers by Caroline Shaw and the band there, Room Full of Teeth, with which she is a singer. And Anne, you know that feeling well at 3 p.m. on a Monday in April where we're all kind of on pins and needles when the Pulitzers are announced. Is it going to be another academic piece? Is it going to be jazz? Is it going to be pop? What's it going to be? The Pulitzers have certainly made a concerted effort to be more diverse in that, given that they're in a kind of tricky place because classical music is a more academic segment of the music world to begin with. So they've been notably reaching out and trying to take different avenues. But it was pretty great to see a 30-year-old woman who didn't even define herself primarily as a composer at that point winning this amazing prize very deservedly. Um, Caroline Shaw is a really wonderful composer. It was a smart prize, and it launched a career that's taken her all over the place. Right, even collaborations with Kanye West. Without dumbing down or without losing her fundamental integrity, she's a very contained, very astute composer. And still writing really good music along Absolutely. the way. I mean, not much of it has been recorded, but there was a record out with string quartet music of hers for the Ataka Quartet that was really beautiful. And I don't know if you caught it a couple of years ago when she was here and she performed her own violin concerto called Low, yes. which is a spectacular piece. I did. I I'm did hoping hear that. that gets recorded. So does her win really, does that signify anything for us that we have a, the, the youngest person to win the Pulitzer um, and some very fresh sounding vocal music? Well, the Pulitzers have, I think it's five of the last ten Pulitzers have gone to women. I think it signals a real shift for the Pulitzers that they're making a concerted effort to promote the music of women, which is a necessary thing and which has been, in a way, a theme of this decade. (laughs) 
a little bit from this year's Pulitzer-winning score from the opera Prism by Ellen Reed, one of the most luminous theatrical scores in quite some time, I think. Um, Reed is one of five women who have won Pulitzers in the past decade. Before her came Du Yun in 2017, Julia Wolfe in 2015, Caroline Shaw, as we mentioned, in 2013, and Jennifer Higdon in 2010. But, uh, and before that, going back to like the beginning of the Pulitzers in 1943, there had been only three women winners. Yes. In order for women to gain parity in this field, there has to be some major catching up done. And the way the field conceives itself has has to change. And I think the field has recognized that in a way, that you're not going to get anything like parity. I think 1.8% of the music performed in 2015 season was by women. And that's not because women are less talented. It's because presenters are sort of have the mindset that the canon is what people want. And the numbers are really disproportionate. Right. Back in the 2018-2019 season, the Chicago Symphony Orchestra presented 54 composers in their regular season. You want to guess how many were women? One. Zero. (laughs) And it's the same thing for the Philadelphia Orchestra in that same season. 55 composers presented and there were no women. Cleveland was a little bit better, one out of 41. New York Philharmonic, two women out of 49 composers. So why is that? Is it because people are just afraid of new music? The canon that people are conditioned to accept as being important classical music tends to be male. And, um, I mean, I hate to play gotcha journalism with some of these groups because the Chicago Symphony, for example, has been great about promoting living female composers. Augusta Reed Thomas, Anna Klein, now Missy Mazzoli is their new composer in residence. They've been consistently very good about that for a long time. Um, That said, there shouldn't ever be a season without music by women performed. And to those who say, oh, it just matters what's good, I would counter that you don't know what's good if you don't hear it. And the music by women is simply not getting a hearing. And there are lots of pieces by women that would actually knock your socks off if you ever had a chance to hear them. And there is some reversal we're happy to report now, I think. The New York Philharmonic has announced Project 19. They're commissioning 19 women for brand new pieces, including uh, Caroline Shaw, Ellen Reed, Anna Thorvald's daughter, Du Yun, and some of the older guard, Joan Tower and Melinda Wagner. Yes, yes. So that's, that's good. And, and Philadelphia Orchestra, too, has announced uh, initiatives and commissions uh, from Gabriela Elena Frank and Nina C. Young, among others. I think as soon as people hear initiative, they think, oh, gosh, they're going to ram this music down our throat. And it's really a shame it hasn't happened organically. That said, it doesn't seem to happen that organically. Our field programs way in advance, and it's very, very conservative and clings to what's already been done. I would also say that opera companies and orchestras have become very aware of this problem with the regrettable result that you're seeing a little bit of knee-jerk, oh, we better get a woman in there, um, which is better than not doing women. But the Institute of Composer Diversity up at SUNY Fredonia has actually created a database of works by women and people of color. And that's a resource that people can turn to because the programmers really are dealing with a new world out there um, in that they don't know that much music by women and so the same pieces tend to get played over and over. And so I think you're seeing, and I think you'll see in the next 10 years, um, a lot more work at making some of this work more canonical, getting better editions, better performing editions, more publications, and figuring out ways to make it available to performers. And I hope that comes true. Uh, it's Tom Heisinger with you with Anne Majette from The Washington Post. We're looking back at the past decade in classical music. And right alongside 
gender issues come issues of diversity. Now, this has always been kind of a problem that classical music is thought of as a white dead guy's domain. And here are some numbers for you from a 2014 League of American Orchestras study that showed that less than 2% of musicians in American orchestras are African-American. And the numbers weren't uh, that much better for administrative staff and for conductors, uh, composers too. I, I guess a lot of people are wondering how we can improve those numbers. Well, orchestras are madly tapping the buzzword of diversity and saying they're reaching out. There are a lot of issues with this. I mean, some people say diversity is something that comes of its own accord, you know, that that people like the music they like and trying to force people to like different kinds of music is is silly. But the real issue is that people of color who want to make a career in this field have found obstacles and that plenty of people of color are treated as outsiders, as whether they're in the audience or on the stage or composing. Um, I believe Imani Wins has been told multiple times, we don't, we don't like your kind of music, as if the only music that people of color were capable of playing were jazz. So as far as going about changing it, of course, it's the same way you change anything. You get more diversity at the board level, you get more diversity in the administration, and you make a conscious effort to raise awareness of the wealth of music that's out there. Um, what you don't do, and I see a little too much of this happening, you don't simply drag out the same three pieces for Black History Month every year. Right, and sort checking of feel, the boxes. Checking the boxes, exactly. It has to be a sincere and from the ground up development in your organization that changes the look of the organization. People have embraced strongly, especially this decade, perhaps the El Sistema model. This was the decade when Gustavo Dudamel was at the Los Angeles Philharmonic and El Sistema orchestras were springing up everywhere. El Sistema, of course, is the training program in Venezuela that is known for taking children from the barrios and getting them to play Beethoven magnificently. A little Beethoven there with Gustavo Dudamel leading what was then called the um, Simon Bolivar Youth Orchestra of Venezuela. And those kids are part of that El Sistema program there. It has touched thousands and thousands of children in Venezuela, and it has created some really impressive careers, prominent among them Gustavo Dudamel. But the embrace of that model in America... It's a great thing because it's always a great thing to get kids exposed to music. You can't say anything against that. But there are disturbing connotations of colonialism. There's a disturbing um, undertone to believing that you're going to save black and brown children by playing them this great white music. And this idea that this music alone is uniquely able to change people's lives that is misleading and that is a dangerous rhetorical path to be taking. Um, and I don't think the field has fully come to a reckoning of that. Um, that said, there's very much wonderful work being done by genuinely committed people in inner cities around the country. And then the African-American composers represented in our concert halls are, again, sparse. And the same goes for opera houses. But the Met just announced recently, right this past month, that they're going to do a production of Fire Shut Up in My Bones by Terrence Blanchard in some coming season. But yes. It seems like sometimes it's the smaller venues like Opera Theatre St. Louis that's been championing Terrence Blanchard's music and some of the other smaller houses seem to be taking a little bit more 
uh, strides in composers of color and taking a few more risks, why might that be? I firmly believe that one of the biggest problems classical music has today is or are its institutions. Um, We have these enormous institutions that suck up lots and lots of money that don't have the flexibility to be able to do a lot of new stuff. And it sort of takes away the oxygen and the funds from the smaller institutions, whereas a lot of the exciting things that are happening are happening at the smaller places because there is the flexibility, because there is the new thinking. I think also that audiences today have proved time and again that they are very interested in the music, but not necessarily in the existing formats that we have for it. I think the only reason that orchestras are struggling is that not everybody wants to go and sit in a concert hall and have that experience. It's not that people don't want to hear Beethoven. And I believe that smaller institutions can capitalize on that and run with it because there's a sense of flexibility and scrappiness and excitement and something new. And um, you can try and experiment without fearing an expensive belly flop if it doesn't work, which is a big thing for an institution. The Metropolitan Opera has shown if it does something wrong, everybody mocks it ceaselessly. And of course, those belly flops are part of art. All artists have had those belly flops. You've got to take risks and if you want to get further, and sometimes risks don't succeed. But it's very hard for these large institutions we've built to take that kind of risk in any meaningful way. And that, I think, impacts the way that these institutions are able to be actual artistic organizations, that real artistry is about something much more vital and close to the bone. And, you know, one of those smaller, flexible, risk-taking institutions is the Boston Modern Orchestra Project, uh, which performs symphonic music that's either neglected or new And one of my favorite albums of the past decade is that orchestra's recording of this gloriously rambunctious recent piece by Andrew Norman called simply Play. Music from Andrew Norman's amazing symphonic roller coaster titled Play with Gil Rose leading the Boston Modern Orchestra Project. Tom Heisinger here with Anne Majette of the Washington Post, and we're kind of glancing in the rearview mirror looking at some of the mile markers in classical music over the past decade. Uh, perhaps the most visible issue in recent years has been classical music and harassment. People might tend to think of classical music as kind of squeaky clean and all buttoned up, but that is surely not the case. Just look at what's happening with opera's biggest star, Placido Domingo. Uh, And in classical music, it was the allegations against James Levine in 2017 that seemed to open the door to, uh, unfortunately, many sad stories that followed, including the one, Anne, that you broke in the Washington Post in the summer of 2018. Tell us a, a little bit about that. When the Harvey Weinstein story broke in 2017, every industry began looking at just how much had been swept under the rug and how much had been accepted um, that shouldn't have been accepted. And of course, James Levine was a big case where everybody supposedly knew for years and years and years that many things had gone on. And um, when that finally came out, 
it sort of began a reckoning. In any case, I wasn't really planning to write about it in the wake of the Levine scandals, although I did write a very strong editorial about the implicit um, responsibility that the institutions had since everybody was abuzz about James Levine and yet nobody took actual steps to do anything about it. Um, somebody within the business approached me and said, you must write about this. And I said, well, I said, I'm not really a reporter. I'm a critic, but I can I can try. And um, this person sort of started putting my name out. I'm not even clear how it went. My name spread like wildfire on social media with my phone number. And everybody said, if you have stories, call Ann Majette. Tell her she will respect your anonymity. And I hadn't authorized any of this, but I was sort of curious to see where it would lead. And I spoke to more than 75 victims of sexual harassment um, of all degrees, male and female victims um, all over the country, famous people, not famous at all people. It really was an eye-opener in terms of what people have gone through in this business. Tell us a little bit about, obviously without naming any names, what it was like talking to your sources for this story. It was really striking that there was nobody who had spurious claims. I mean, of 75 people, there were maybe one or two who were, you know, mad about some relationship or who had construed some dinner. But in in virtually every case, it was very clear. We're not talking about a flirtation gone wrong. We're talking about trust betrayed, whether it's your manager suddenly trying to put his tongue in your mouth or suddenly grabbing you during dinner. In a lot of these cases with a very young singer, if you've been built up for a couple of years by a manager and you really think that person believes in your talent, and then all of a sudden you realize that they were kind of after you, it it can be shattering in a way that it's hard to remember now when you're older and you're reading it in the paper and you say, oh, well, all he did was chase him around the kitchen. You know, what's how bad can that be? But the hit to somebody's confidence that that takes is remarkable. And furthermore, then everybody starts blaming the victim and saying, well, you shouldn't be alone at dinner with a mentor. Um, I've been alone at dinner with plenty of mentors who managed not to make passes at me, and I'm very grateful for that. It's almost always about power, and it's not about making a pass at somebody who has the right to say no and will be unaffected by it. In every case, it's sort of the person is weighing the consequences of saying no and realizing that this is going to change the course of the track they've been on. One that really stuck with me was an academic situation where the person who had been assaulted followed the correct channels and went to the authorities and reported it, and the school stepped in and did what the school was supposed to do. So that person was protected from contact. She she could only have, I think, email contact with the alleged assaulter. But that in itself closed down a lot of her possibilities for Mm -hmm. advancement because the person who had assaulted her was so in control of the music scene in that particular area in the school and in the town outside it that the victim suddenly was not getting any more ability to show her work. And so although she had been protected by the letter of the law, her career was basically ended there and she had to move. And then we're finding that some of the institutions where these offenders have resided for a while, those institutions aren't really protecting their own as well as they should. Well, this story is partly an example of that, that these institutions will sort of say, well, we've we've checked that box and dotted the I. But in fact, the person who did the assaulting gets off scot-free because that person is much more important in terms of attracting students, attracting donors. They're often charismatic, dynamic people. The school feels like they would be 
lost without them. I mean, this is not just true of schools. This is true of orchestras. This is true of opera houses. This is how you have very high-placed people like the tenor Placido Domingo, who represents the opera world to many people. He is our last big superstar tenor left. And now the AP has come out with 20 women who accuse him of various forms of groping, unwanted contact. I can say from my own experience writing one of these stories that what makes it into print after the lawyers have been through it and all the editors have been through it is the tiniest tip of the iceberg of what's Mm. actually there. Mm. Um, People are very quick with these Me Too stories to say, oh my God, they're just handing the microphone to anybody with an allegation. And our story took seven months. It was fine-toothed comb by lawyers. Many stories ended up on the cutting room floor because we didn't have sufficient other independent sources, even Mm -hmm. though we completely believed the stories. We always had to have at least two independent stories about an individual, and then each of those stories had to be corroborated by multiple people. Um, It was a really painstaking process, and the idea that these Me Too stories are just sort of pulled out of the hat is a misunderstanding of investigative journalism, actually. And we are finding that some of these um, people who have been accused, um, like Placido Domingo, have you know are now resigning. He's resigned from the Metropolitan Opera. He's resigned from the L.A. Opera, which is a company that he helped found. And then there are other famous musicians along these lines, like Charles de Troyes and Daniel Gatti. They are treated a little bit differently in Europe than they are here. Absolutely. This this has been a very divisive issue internationally, and in that many Europeans feel that, oh, this is American hysteria gone amok. Placido de Domingo was singing at the Salzburg Festival almost immediately after the AP's first story ran, and there was a pointed 10-minute ovation for Domingo when he came out. It's a tricky thing because Domingo is very charming. He's very flirtatious. He's been very promiscuous for years, and that's not me too. Being flirtatious is allowed. Having adulterous sex is allowed. It's the abuse of power and actually hurting people that's not allowed. And because many people have experienced the charming and flirtatious side of Domingo, they assume that the Me Too flap about him is criticizing that, and it's not at all. But yes, Daniele Gatti has the Rome opera now. He right. went on from his dismissal by the Concertgebouw. This has been a question, again, not only in classical music, how Me Too figures are going to be allowed to rehabilitate themselves um, outside of the field as well. In the straight entertainment field, there are people who are sort of making their way back right. into Louis careers C. now. Right, Louis C.K. is trying to make his way back. Al exactly. Franken has a new podcast out. Exactly. Now. We've got more about classical music's decade of reckoning that we want to talk about, but first we need to take just a little bit of a break. It's Hall Songs Considered from NPR Music. Support for this podcast and the following message come from American Mensa the high IQ organization that offers intellectual stimulation and a place to socialize with smart people like yourself. Your high intelligence is the passport to compelling Mensa groups, events, and publications. If you think you may be eligible for membership, take Mensa's admission test or qualify using one of 200 other supervised tests that are accepted. Visit AmericanMensa.com join to take the next step today. It's All Songs Considered. I'm Tom Heisinger, along with Ann Majette of The Washington Post. And as we're coming up on the year 2020, we're looking back at what has happened in the classical music world in the past decade, a decade of reckoning, we're calling it. And we're going to let the strains of the Philadelphia Orchestra in a new recording of Wynton Marsalis's Violin Concerto get us into this next area of discussion. Thank you. 
One story we heard again and again over the last decade was financial troubles. Uh, Here's just a partial list. Beginning in 2010 with the Louisville Orchestra bankruptcy in 2011, the Philadelphia Orchestra filed for Chapter 11. In 2013, New York City Opera closed its doors. Uh, And just this summer, Baltimore Symphony Orchestra admitted that it had hemorrhaged over $16 million over the past 10 years. It's been um, a rough decade for finances, hasn't it? It has. I mean, at bottom, you have the problem that you have these huge institutions which are offering a product that it's not clear that everybody still wants. And our industry is so focused on also keeping alive every last organization. You know, if an orchestra goes out of business, it's seen as this calamity. In fact, in any healthy economy, beloved restaurants close, new ones open. People get very mad at me for comparing an orchestra to a restaurant, but I don't see that as a frivolous comparison at all. It's part of the way business works, and something closing makes room for new things to open. Um, This is not saying it would be great if every orchestra went out of business, but we have, I think, too many orchestras right now, and a lot of them are offering too many concerts, more concerts than people want to go to. And I would offer as evidence the many smaller regional orchestras that offer six programs a year rather than 40 programs a year and that get sold out excited houses for those six. Again, I don't think that everybody should be offering six programs, but I think that there should be more variety possible. And there's this really fixation on maintaining the status quo that doesn't do any favors to the field at all. And I think it was just such a stunner for people to find out in um, 2011, the Philadelphia Orchestra, the pride of American orchestras going bankrupt. It went bankrupt, but then it came out of bankruptcy. It's still been playing. It never stopped playing. It's, It's sort of like the impeachment of Bill Clinton. He was still in office. What did it really mean? (laughs) (laughs) And then the other side of the coin, they're related to, is this problem of labor disputes. And we had some doozies. There was a very long Detroit Symphony Orchestra strike. They Mm -hmm. had their financial troubles, and they've come out of that a much stronger orchestra. Uh, Also, a very long Minnesota Orchestra lockout in 2012, Uh, which along the way their music director, Osmo Venska, resigned. The the labor disputes, we could name a lot of them. The Met Opera had its own labor dispute. Atlanta was locked out twice. And I think you reminded me that in 2016, there are three orchestras on strike in the month of September alone. Yep. Uh, Philly on opening night, Pittsburgh and Fort Worth. Exactly. And What's interesting is that a couple of those, like the Minnesota lockout, which was a 15-month-long lockout, it seemed impossible the orchestra could survive. And they, too, are doing better than ever. They've done some major tours. They went to Cuba. They went to South Africa. They've really come out in wonderful shape. I don't think anybody could have predicted that in the middle of that lockout, that this was going to be a possible outcome. So that's very heartening. It's like they got a new lease on life in a way. Some of the other orchestras are perpetually struggling because they're dealing with cities that aren't necessarily able to fund them. Well, and another shocker, I think, was when the uh, funding ran out for the New York City Opera. Uh, I think people were shocked that the 70-year-old company closed its doors. It was once called the People's Opera. It helped uh, to develop the careers of star singers like uh, Placido Domingo, Samuel Ramey, uh, Beverly Sills. And as it kind of limped towards its demise, the company was only looking for several million dollars to stay afloat, but no one seemed to step up to help. But that was a whole special case of 
mismanagement and a string of, of some unfortunate events that led up to it. I mean, to take people have taken that as proof that you know opera is dying or New York can't support two companies. That's just not true. I believe that New York can support two companies, but the companies have to be well run and well put together. So, do you think we're going to see more of this in the in the the coming decade? The financial issues, the labor problems. Well. It's funny because we hear all of these classical music is dying stories and all of those stories point at all of these labor problems and issues. But if you look at all of the new groups that are springing up, I mean, at the same time in New York City, we've seen Beth Morrison projects and her prototype festival, which are developing new work that go all over the country. And win Pulitzers. And win Pulitzer Prizes, exactly. And are it's a major creative force. A little music there from the opera Dog Days, a wonderful piece by David T. Little, produced by Beth Morrison Projects, uh, an industry disruptor, she calls her outfit, which um, commissions and develops and produces theatrical works. And that's a great new opera company story. It just doesn't look exactly like City Opera did, but as I say, new audiences want something different anyway. Um, We see the industry in L.A., similarly a place that develops different kinds of work. We've seen small ensembles rise and fall and change. And I think that's a much more accurate reflection of what art is really like, you know, and these institutions aren't necessarily. Right. And that's a good reminder that there are bright spots, plenty of them, rays of hope. Uh, We have been talking a lot of gloom uh, hovering over the classical field in the last decade, diversity issues, gender, Me Too, finances. But um, let's take a, a, a few final moments to focus a little on the musicians and institutions that are thinking outside the box, because there are plenty of inspiring stories out there, I think. Absolutely. And we say thinking outside the box, but in some sense, we shouldn't really be in the box to begin with, because we're talking about art. There's all kinds of ways to make art that don't require the apparatus that we've created around our particular art form. At the Park Avenue Armory, Igor Levitt performed the Goldberg Variations together with the performance artist Marina Abramovich. And Abramovich is, of course, a very buzzy name, and she staged the whole thing, and people had to leave their cell phones at the door, and it was played in darkness. That thing sold out. It was a big event in New York. And what people heard in darkness and in light was Igor Levitt playing the Goldberg Variations, not dumbed down, not amplified, not jazzed up. It was straight music, and they were rapped. Igor Levitt then came back and played a recital, and it sold pretty well for 500 seats, but mm-hmm. people didn't really want to hear Igor Levitt in recital. They really wanted to hear that event. And that's not a bad thing. That's great. You can get 7,000 people in New York listening to the Goldberg Variations without coughing. Symphony orchestra concerts don't often have that kind of cachet. And that's a sign that people are are perfectly entranced by this music. The music is not the problem. It's the way we're offering it. And then there are some artists who are not really necessarily relying on the major institutions to get their art out there, people who are just doing very interesting work. We're thinking of soprano Barbara Hannigan, who's also a conductor now as well. Um, Who are some other people on your list? I would say that two of my sort of stars of this decade are Barbara Hannigan and Julia Bullock, who's also a soprano, and who also, both of those singers are very active in big institutions. Julia Bullock featured in John Adams' Girl of the Golden West at the San Francisco Opera. But Julia Bullock has, the times I've heard her in recital, she has managed to create recitals that are 
socially aware, that are dealing with a lot of the issues we're talking about in terms of diversity and gender and her place in the world she's in. They are meaningful artistic statements. It shows what you can do with the form we've been given rather than just feel, feel you have to fill out a recital program with X number of songs in X different languages. Like Patricia Kapachanskaya, the violinist, who is a remarkable violinist and as outside the box as you can get if you think of box as defined by past performances of Tchaikovsky's Violin Concerto. Right, let's hear a little bit of that since you brought that up. some really ferocious bouncing of the bow on this little spiccato. And then she gets back to this theme and she goes from this violence to this barest whisper, the barest weight of the bow on the string to introduce that theme back into your ear. And we should mention that the conductor here is another kind of renegade person that doesn't color within the lines Theodore Carenzis. There's also in the last 10 years been this rise in what has been called indie classical musicians that are a little bit more of the DIY thing. They might be playing in a rock band during the week. They might be premiering one of their new classical pieces with a chamber group on the weekend. And the rise in the record label called New Amsterdam, recording a lot of these very interesting artists like Missy Mazzoli, Sarah Kirkland Snyder, Y Music, Daniel Wall, Roomful of Teeth. That seems to have been a real fresh sound for the last few years. It's a fresh sound, and it's become kind of the established sound, like the the, the arc from new and undiscovered to the, the in-thing is much shorter than it used to be. But right. I feel like New Amsterdam is now the sort of granddaddy of that world. That arc was really epitomized by the transition of Bang on a Can, the composer's collaborative, from outsider, maverick, indie people to elder statesmen of the field right. who and are Pulitzer now... Winners. And Pulitzer winners. Right. And they're right. all now commissioned by the major institutions. And um, that's a shift they never thought they were going to see. And I think it's legitimized a lot of the DIY efforts. But as the head of Juilliard, Joseph Polizzi, said to me back in 2009, I think, a lot of this DIY stuff is going back to the roots of classical music. That, like Mozart. Like Mozart, exactly. That's what you did. You would write something and then you would play it and you'd put together a group and you'd go play it and here. You'd and you'd market it yourself. And, and you'd and market it yourself and you'd try to find somebody else and you'd hustle to sell your editions and it's sort of how you make art. <laughs> let's let's entertain a, like a final question. That's gazing into the crystal ball, into the future. Where's all this going and what do you think is happening in the next 10 years? I think we're inevitably going to see the changing of the guard that we've been talking about for some time as the established audience now in their 70s and 80s gradually goes away. Um, there's a lot of creative energy and a lot of talent out there to help carry classical music into its future incarnations. We are also seeing a tipping point for traditional institutions, and I always compare classical music to journalism, and that's not purely a self-serving 
comparison because I've been working as a journalist all these years, but um, daily newspapers are in many of the same places that classical music institutions are in terms of dealing with a dwindling audience that's looking for other forms of getting what it is that you offer mm -hmm. and trying to develop new readership and make yourself interesting. It's They're very parallel. I think we're going to see these institutions morphing and transitioning even more radically, be they newspapers, be, their, be they opera houses, um, they're going to have to change a lot to keep up. And I would say in 10 or 20 years, we'll be looking at perhaps fewer of the legacy institutions, all the better for that, hopefully all the stronger for that, and hopefully others that have been able to morph even more into reflecting the time and place they live in, which is how you really make important and meaningful art. And that's a nice thought to go out on. And thanks for gazing into the classical crystal ball. Anne Majek, critic at the Washington Post, has been our guest today, trying to uh, assess the past decade in classical music and looking ahead a little bit. And thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me. And if you enjoyed this conversation, there's a lot more classical music coverage at npr.org classical. We've got a classical playlist updated every Thursday on Spotify and Apple Music. Just search NPR Classical. For all songs considered and NPR music, I'm Tom Heisinger. <laughs>